This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, On the Media, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Media Matters, The Progressive, The Jimmy Dore Show, President Obama's Tucson Speech, The Colbert Report, Slate Magazine, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Media Matters. So here we are again, stunned by... Uh, uh, a tragedy. We have been visited by this demon before. Uh, our hearts go out to those that have been injured or killed and their loved ones. Uh, how do you make sense of these types of senseless situations is really the question that seems to be on, on everybody's mind. And I don't know that there is a way to make sense of this sort of thing. Uh, as I watch the political pundit world, uh, many are reflecting and grieving and, and, and trying to figure things out. But it's definitely true that others are working feverishly to find the tidbit or two that will exonerate their side from blame or implicate the other. Uh, and watching that is uh, as predictable, I think, as it is dispiriting. Um, did the toxic political environment cause this? A graphic image here, uh, uh, an ill-timed comment, uh, violent rhetoric, those types of things. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, we live in a complex ecosystem of influences and motivations, and I wouldn't blame uh, uh, our political rhetoric any more than I would blame heavy metal music for Columbine. And, Columbine. and, and by the way, that is coming from somebody who truly hates our political environment. <laughs> it, is, it is toxic. Uh, it is unproductive. Uh, but to say that 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 is what has caused this, or that the people in that are responsible for this, I, I just don't think you can do it, it. Boy, would that be nice. Boy, would it be nice to be able to draw a straight line uh, of causation from this horror to something tangible, because then we could uh, convince ourselves that if we just stop this, the horrors will, will end. You know, to have the feeling, however fleeting, that this type of event uh, can be prevented forever. But I, it's hard not to feel like it can't. You know, you, you cannot outsmart crazy. You don't know what a troubled mind will get caught on. Crazy always seems to find a way. It always has. Uh, which is not to suggest that resistance is futile. <laughs> that, I, it sounded pretty dark, what I just said there, uh, now that I reconsidered it in my own head. <laughs> Crazy people rule us all. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's true, but, and I do think it's important for us to, to watch our rhetoric. I do think it's a worthwhile goal not to conflate our political opponents with enemies. If for no other reason than to draw a better distinction between the manifestos of paranoid madmen and what passes for acceptable political and pundit speak. You know, it, it would be really nice if the ramblings of crazy people didn't in any way resemble how we actually talk to each other on TV. <laughs> let's, let's at least, let's, Let's at least make troubled individuals easier to spot. 
and and you know again I it is to see good people like this hurt it is it is so grievous and it, it, it causes me such sadness but again I refuse to give in to that feeling of despair there is light in this situation I urge everyone read up about those who were hurt and, and or killed in this shooting you will be comforted by just how much anonymous goodness there really is in the world you read about these people and you realize that that all the people that you don't even know that you have never met are leading lives of real dignity and and goodness and you hear about crazy but it's rarer than you think and I think you'll find yourself even more impressed with uh, 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 Congresswoman Giffords and amazed at how much living some of the deceased packed into lives that were cut way too short and uh, if there is real solace in this uh, I, I think it's that for all the hyperbole and the vitriol that's become a part of our political process when the reality of that rhetoric when 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 actions match the disturbing nature of words we haven't lost our capacity to be horrified and please God, let us hope we never do let, let us hope we never become numb to what real horror what the real blood of patriots looks like when it's spilled maybe it, it helps us to remember to match our rhetoric with reality more often because the reality of dangerous rhetoric is is I think even those that speak hyperbolically I think all of them tonight would would absolutely recoil and say wow you know I, that that's you know that is not uh, uh, the picture of what we were discussing and what we were talking about and and I have to remember that there's a reality to that situation uh, that we can't approach verbally um, because <laughs> someone or something will shatter our world again and and wouldn't it be a shame if we didn't take this opportunity and and the loss of these uh, incredible people and the pain that their loved ones are going through right now wouldn't it be a shame if we didn't take that moment to make sure that the world that we are creating now uh, that will ultimately be shattered again by a moment of lunacy uh, wouldn't it be a shame if that world wasn't better than the one we'd previously lost it's a beautiful world I see everything's differently it's a beautiful world I see These moments are changing me When I look at the sky I see the reason why I know Oh, oh, oh When I look out from the window The moon and stars shine all their lights down from in the absence of any connection between Jared Loeffner's acts and the political speech that swirled around him, the question persists, what has the aggressive rhetoric done to our society? George Packer writes for The New Yorker, and he says Loeffner's particular motivations for the shooting rampage aren't really the point. The point is that when this shooting took place, the fact that it made people realize how violent the discourse has become, 
and how likely it was that something like this would happen meant that the two were going to be irrevocably associated. And in fact, to me, it's almost remarkable that there hadn't been a high-profile attack because there have been many lower-profile attacks or near attacks. In our history, there have always been politically motivated attacks by mainly crackpots. There's also always been political rhetoric couched in the terms of war and combat. So what makes, for example, Sarah Palin's crosshairs image of uh, Gabriel Gifford's congressional district worse than what we've long been used to? I think historically it's ebbed and flowed. The 19th century was a pretty violent century politically. The 20th century was less so. In the last 10, 15 years, it has really heated up. What makes this atmosphere particularly dangerous is that those garden variety military metaphors are used in a context in which the Second Amendment is actually not a right being asserted. It's a weapon that's used in a kind of a coy way to issue a threat. If we don't get our way, we're going to turn to violence. Asserted not by fringe elements, but by, for example, uh, Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate, uh, Sharon Engel. You know, if this, this Congress keeps going the way it is, people are really looking toward those Second Amendment remedies. They're saying, my goodness, what can we do to turn this country around? The key part of this is where it's coming from. It's coming from leaders in the right-wing political movement and their media heroes. Let me just say one thing about Sarah Palin and the Crosshairs campaign literature. By itself, I wouldn't think that that's a particularly incendiary document. It's first the context in which it appears, which is continual use of that kind of language of guns, of war. And second, in retrospect, it just seems indecent. This woman was shot. Isn't it regrettable someone once put a crosshairs on her district now? These are people who, as Orwell once wrote, are playing with fire without knowing that it's hot. They don't seem to understand the toxicity of what they've created. You talked in your uh, post about static. Tell me, what's the static to which you refer? The incendiary language that is more and more the stuff of talk radio, cable news, and in more and more of mainstream news, which reports on cable news and talk radio. And it's, it's as if now to qualify for the news, you have to be willing to say some pretty outrageous things, because otherwise it's just not good enough to get you on the air. I'm not blaming those individuals for the shooting. In fact, there's a big gap between them. I'm saying in people's minds... There was a natural association. It's as if people woke up and realized, I've been hearing really ugly language for several years now. And so it must have had something to do with those shootings. Well, it didn't, as it turned out. It could easily have. I wonder if it's just that we realize that this is what armed tyranny against an oppressive government looks like when it's written in actual blood. The shooting in a supermarket on a quiet Saturday morning in the most ordinary setting possible suddenly showed people this is what they're talking about. This is what a dead or wounded politician surrounded by other dead or wounded people is really like. And it's as if a kind of fantasy or hallucination that had been settling over parts of the country became real. And it was shocking for that reason. 
I want to go to 1995 in Oklahoma City. That was a uh, crime committed by people who may or may not have had full command of their senses, but nonetheless knew exactly what they were about. That was an explicitly political act. And yet it seems to me that the conversation we're having now over the Arizona shootings is far more concerned with the political environment than the conversation was then. What's different? I think there was more unity about the horror of that event and what it meant. That event instantly delegitimized whatever appeal the militia movement, the far-right fringe, might have had for anyone in public life. But this event, because the meaning is less clear here, the room for misunderstanding and false accusation and counter-accusation is greater. And I think the political atmosphere today is worse. I wanted to tell you about some of our own deliberations on the show before we even had this conversation. Because there has been no connection established between Jared Loeffner's motives and the political environment in general, because he appears to be a paranoid schizophrenic acting out of his illness, there's a question as to whether it's fair to even discuss this issue. If there's no connection, why are we discussing the connection? It's a very difficult balance to strike between not assigning responsibility to anyone who isn't responsible and at the same time stating the obvious. We know that Gabrielle Giffords said on television early last year that she was concerned about the effects of the attacks on her. There was a very close association between her fear and her fate, but it wasn't a direct relation. And so to talk about it, one has to make those very fine distinctions. But to me, not to talk about it would be bizarre. For example, if the man who shot Yitzhak Rabin in 1995 were not politically motivated, as he was, but were a paranoid schizophrenic, wouldn't the Israelis also have had to talk about the toxic atmosphere of charges of being a traitor and a heretic? I think we're in, if not quite such an extreme situation, a similar situation where the language has reached a point where public figures running for office were essentially saying, we're going to take up guns if we don't get our way. And then a woman is shot who feared being attacked and who had been under verbal attack for a a whole year and whose opponent in the race last year used an M16 as a campaign tool. How can you not talk about that? To me, it would just be bizarre not to. Is your first quote. When we take up our arms, we're talking about voting. That was somebody explaining that she had nothing, nothing to do with inciting political violence. Who? Uh, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, indeed, yes. Very good. 
It was a week of tragedy as the nation turned its eyes to Sarah Palin and said, are you okay? She gets involved in every story, and it's not entirely yeah. her fault. America is obsessed with her. She's well, like I mean. a, she's crazy. like our collective ex-girlfriend, and we just can't. That's true. We can't stop thinking. Yeah, I know. In this case, uh, the controversy was caused by the map that Ms. Palin put out some time ago, featuring snipers' crosshairs over Democratic congressional districts, including the one held by Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Palin's aides said it, and this is true. They said this. They said it wasn't a crosshairs; it was just a surveyor's mark. Oh. You know, the harmless kind of thing you see when you look through a surveyor's scope at your prey <laughs> as you prepare to brutally survey it. What is it? Is, she a, is Sarah Palin the cartographer? What is I this? don't know. This is, this I'm was, not happy with the way Arizona has been mapped. Therefore, we shall survey it. <laughs> Finally, Ms. Palin uh, released a long video statement in which she referred to the, quote, blood libel against her. Now, she may not have known this, to be fair, but this is a loaded phrase, blood libel. It refers to, among other things, the idea that the Jews murdered Jesus. Of course, the Jews did not murder Jesus, but they did put up a map of Judea on the Internet with the crosshairs over Bethlehem. So... I actually... I had never heard the phrase blood libel because that's not like a phrase you hear that often like used in advertisements or no. I thought it was a boring Cormac McCarthy novel. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. On the day that President Obama is scheduled to deliver a eulogy in Tucson, Arizona, Fox News contributor Sarah Palin released a video statement in response to Saturday's tragic shooting. But the former Alaska governor seemed to go on the defense. If you don't like a person's vision for the country, you're free to debate that vision. If you don't like their ideas, you're free to propose better ideas. But especially within hours of a tragedy unfolding, Journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence that they purport to condemn. That is reprehensible. As Media Matters' Jameson Fozier put it, according to Sarah Palin, violent rhetoric plays no role in inspiring violent acts, but criticism of violent rhetoric incites, quote, hatred and violence. Right. Wow, Sarah Palin, sure got no shame. You'd think that after literally putting Gabriel Giffords in the crosshairs and after Giffords herself had condemned Palin for doing so, that Palin might have the dignity now either to say nothing or to show at least an ounce of remorse or pledge to lower her own rhetoric by a decibel or two. But not Palin. No, she made herself the victim. She said journalists and pundits shouldn't manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence they purport to condemn. That is reprehensible, she said. Well, how about acknowledging, in hindsight, that her own words were reprehensible? How about acknowledging that her map was reprehensible? How about acknowledging that the ready availability of guns and her celebration of guns is reprehensible. Instead, she called into question the patriotism of her critics and said they had imagined some insults. Well, there's nothing imaginary about her lock and load 
rhetoric or about that map with the crosshairs. She said she spent the past few days reflecting on what happened and praying for guidance. Evidently, she was reflecting mostly on herself and praying for guidance on how to save her political hide. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. And now, a message from Sarah Palin. Hello, my fellow Americans. I wanted to take this opportunity to address the tragic events that unfolded this past weekend. No, not the Learning Channel's failure to pick up my reality show, Sarah Palin's Alaska, for a second season. While that was certainly tragic, not to mention unpatriotic, fans of my reality show, Sarah Palin's Alaska, will at least be able to console themselves with the DVD and Blu-ray release of my reality show, Sarah Palin's Alaska, which will be in stores soon. No, I'm talking about a different tragedy. As many of you know, if you watch Fox News, an evil communist Nazi Democrat pothead opened fire on a crowd of people at a supermarket in Tucson. And I wanted to take this opportunity to say that my heart breaks for the victims. Of course, I'm talking about myself and to a lesser extent, Glenn Beck. <laughs> like many of you, I've spent the day since the tragedy reflecting and praying for guidance. And wouldn't you know it, as usual, the guidance I received from Jesus lined up perfectly with my opinion. I've listened with sadness at the attempts of those in the media to assign blame for this horrific event. There's been all kinds of irresponsible talk about who said what to who, and who implicitly urged their supporters to do what, and who put little pictures of what next to the names of who on another thing. <laughs> Well, I'm here to tell you that we as Americans should not tolerate that kind of blood libel from our media. I'm also here to tell you that I only had time to briefly skim the definition of blood libel. <laughs> it's time that our media learned that the blame game is dangerous. When they rush to judgment, they incite the very hatred and violence they purport to condemn. So to sum up, putting crosshairs on a map, talking about Second Amendment remedies, asking followers to get armed and dangerous... These types of things have no impact on the mentally unstable. But when the media starts reporting those things, they put us all at risk. And before you ask, no, I am not intellectually capable of seeing the inconsistency there. <laughs> you know, there's a bittersweet irony that the strength of the American spirit shines brightest in times of tragedy. Rest assured, I will continue to do everything in my power to help us see that shine as often as possible. God bless America and certain Americans. Oh, oh, oh. I need 
We may not be able to stop all evil in the world, but I know that how we treat one another, that's entirely up to us. And I believe that for all our imperfections, we are full of decency and goodness, and that the forces that divide us are not as strong as those that unite us. That's what I believe, in part because that's what a child like Christina Taylor Greene believed. Imagine, imagine for a moment, here was a young girl who was just becoming aware of our democracy, just beginning to understand the obligations of citizenship just starting to glimpse the fact that someday she, too, might play a part in shaping her nation's future. She had been elected to her student council. She saw public service as something exciting and hopeful. She was off to meet her congresswoman, someone she was sure was good and important and might be a role model. She saw all this through the eyes of a child, undimmed by the cynicism or vitriol that we adults all too often just take for granted. I want to live up to her expectations. I want our democracy to be as good as Christina imagined it. I want America to be as good as she imagined it. All of us, we should do everything we can do to make sure this country lives up to our children's expectations. Monday morning, wake up knowing that you gotta go to school. Tell your mom what to expect, she said it's right out of the blue. Do you wanna work in CNA, cause that's what they expect. Move to lingerie and take a few lost children's stolen. There are times when I'm so grateful and proud that we have Barack Obama as our president. I felt that way keenly the day he lifted the ban on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I felt that way keenly when the president spoke in Tucson to mourn the victims of the senseless shooting last Saturday. For here was true leadership, here was true wisdom. Here was a man who knows how to strike the right chords, not just on our heartstrings, but also on our national grand piano. He saluted each of the six who lost their lives in very personal terms so we could grasp them as individuals, and his comments about little Christina brought tears to my eyes even as I read them 12 hours later. He urged civility, asking us to make sure that we're talking with each other in a way that heals, not in a way that wounds. He mentioned the need for humility and to listen to each other more carefully and to sharpen our instincts for empathy. He spoke of getting our priorities straight, of asking ourselves whether we've shown enough kindness and generosity and compassion to the people in our lives. And while there was too much God in there for me, Obama said so much that was right and true 
valuable and poignant. This was the Obama so many people rooted for so long ago. Large of brain, big of heart. Listen to your heart. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. I am feeling very unsettled this evening. You see, last night, President Obama spoke at the memorial in Tucson honoring the victims of last weekend's tragic shooting. And of course, he had to politicize it by doing a great job. <laughs> now, I want to be clear here. Even though I found his words touching and pitch perfect, that doesn't change the fact that I spent the last two years calling this guy Hitler. <laughs> and once you cross that line, you're committed. We all know on Hitler, there are no backsies. <laughs> I've made my bed and I'm gonna lie in it. So in light of the president's inspiring speech, it's time for me to man up and admit, last night, I was moved by Hitler. I mean, I never thought I'd say this, but Hitler said some really lovely things. <laughs> Turns out Hitler's much more sensitive than I gave him credit for. Now, I admit that sounds horrible coming out of my mouth. And if you want to blame somebody, blame President Obama. He's the one who put a friendly face on Hitler. Now, last night, President Obama asked us to reflect and make sure our values align with our actions, and I intend to rise to that challenge. And I'm happy to see the editors of the New York Post are doing it, too. See, they were faced with two immensely uplifting news stories today, and I can't imagine the agonizing reappraisal of their values they went through trying to prioritize. Well, they looked deep inside, and they decided both inspirational stories deserved the front page. Congresswoman Giffords has opened her eyes, and Sting isn't wearing a shirt. <laughs> These are the uplifting stories that a hurting nation needs to heal. Gabby is making progress, and Sting and his wife are still having freaky tantric sex. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Stephen. Sting was talking about that tantric sex stuff 20 years ago. Is he still doing that? Yes. Straight through. <laughs> One long session. And I say bravo. Whatever keeps him away from medieval musical instruments. You could say I lost my faith in the people on TV. 
Today's story is called Beautiful Noise, How Obama Used His Speech in Tucson to Elevate the Political Debate, and it's written by John Dickerson. In Tucson last Wednesday, it sounded like a campaign rally. A memorial service is no place for the cheers and applause, but the noise was perfect. Not because the president's words were powerful, though they were, but because the scene matched this moment of noisy distractions. The solemnity of the event was interrupted in the same way the period after the shooting has been interrupted by the political debate. The president's job was to move past both, to get a message out and through the noise so the country could hear. If it can be done, he did it. The president memorialized the dead and celebrated the heroes. He could have stopped there. He could have decided not to tarnish their memory with politics. He made another decision, using just enough politics and the power of his office to build a memorial to their lives by calling the rest of us to live up to their example. That they are deserving of our good example, that was the message. He used that expression when talking about our children, but it was his request of the country. What beyond prayers and expressions of concern is required of us going forward, he said. How can we honor the fallen? How can we be true to their memory? The president did not ask us to put away passion, but to act with restraint. It was not a call to stop fighting, but to stop fighting dirty. He didn't just issue orders. By holding up the examples of the lives well-lived and worthy of the applause they received, he hoped to draw us to the lesson. The president was a speaker, but he was also a participant. They helped me believe, he said. Later, referring to Christina Taylor Greene, he said, I want to live up to her expectations. I want a democracy to be as good as Christina imagined it. I want America to be as good as she imagined it. On the 50th anniversary of John Kennedy's inauguration, the president wisely did not refer back to the famous line from his predecessor. It's been quoted too often. The text he quoted from twice was the Bible. But the message of the speech was similar. Citizenship demands something of us. In a sense, this was a familiar moment. More words from an eloquent president. But it was more than that. Carefully arranged words are an antidote and an example. In a world of quick, loud, and lazy opinions, it's refreshing to have a speech that feels as though it were typeset. There was no shortage of emotion in the speech, but it did not stretch beyond what was required. As any good writer knows, conveying powerful emotions effectively requires restraint. That's a message that also applies to our political debate. More than eloquence, the president also offered an argument, one he's been making for years. Aides say Obama stayed up all night working on the speech. We know that's his way. But the speech wasn't just the product of an all-nighter. It came from someone who thinks about children and the obligations of being a parent, who knows how it feels to be startled by your desperate love for a spouse whom you might have taken for granted in the rush of the day. The president may not be emotional, but you can't write that speech if you're all ice water. What do we want in a president? The office has become so misshapen it's hard to say what it doesn't encompass. Giving speeches isn't the entire job, of course, but if part of the job requirement is someone who reminds us that our public life can reflect our best private selves, 
then Obama showed that he is up to it. He's been thinking about that idea long before this tragedy called for a speech about it. The test for all of us is to do the same after the applause has died down. Republican Congressman Trent Franks of Arizona made one specific comment yesterday in response to a question about the Tucson tragedy uh, that struck me as um, not only very classy, but as something that reflected a lot of honorable restraint and that I thought made a lot of sense. At this point, I criticize others for making a political nexus uh, or a platform of discussion out of this tragedy. That was Mr. Frank's response to a question about whether he would support a specific gun control measure that's been discussed in Congress recently. And that, that comment, I think, I will refrain uh, from making a political nexus or a platform or political discussion out of this strategy. I will refrain from doing that. That was something that I thought reflected um, good judgment and some class from Congressman Trent Franks yesterday. Um, on the other hand, here is something that Trent Franks said exactly 34 seconds before he said that. You know, I wish there had been one more gun there that day in the hands of a responsible person. That's all I have to say. If only there had been one more gun there that day. You know, Arizona is one of the most highly armed states in the nation. It is very easy to get guns there. A lot of people there have guns. There, in fact, was a man on scene at the shooting in Tucson, a witness to the shooting on Saturday, a responsible gun owner who had his legal weapon loaded and on him at the time of the shooting. He was a guest on Ed Schultz's show this week. As I came out of the door of the Walgreens, Sarah, I saw several individuals wrestling with him, and uh, I came running. I was already at a full sprint, and uh, you know, it's no time to think about anything. I saw a, a, another individual holding the firearm. I kind of assumed he was the shooter, so I, I grabbed his wrist and uh, you know, told him to drop it and forced him to drop the gun on the ground. Uh, when he did that, everybody says, no, no, it's this guy, it's this guy and I proceeded to help hold that man down. Did you ever think of drawing your firearm or you made the determination you didn't have to? Sir, when I came through the door, I had my hand on the butt of my pistol and I clicked the safety off. I was ready to kill him. But I didn't have to do that and I was very blessed that I didn't have to go to that place. Um, luckily, they'd already begun the solution, so all I had to do was help. Um, if they hadn't grabbed him and he had been still moving, I would have shot him. I almost oh, well shot the man holding the gun. I almost shot the man holding the gun, he said. So to be clear, to everybody who's reacted to the shooting by saying that they wish there'd been somebody other than the killer with a gun at that scene, there was someone other than the killer with a gun at the scene. And the person he almost shot was one of the heroes who had just disarmed the killer. I understand there are a lot of fantasies about guns and about heroism and about heroism involving guns. But in this specific case, the fantasy that an armed, responsible gun owner is all that would have been needed to have prevented this tragedy, that is disproved by what actually did happen. 
It could have gone a different way, but this is how it actually went. When you talk about the fantasy of there being a responsible armed gun owner at the site of that shooting on Saturday, it is not a hypothetical. That really happened. And it did not work out according to Trent Franks's fantasy about that. Beyond that specific instance, though, in the aggregate, it is also worth understanding the facts. Louis Gohmert of Texas this week has proposed in response to this shooting that members of Congress carry guns onto the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, unlike EJ, who brought the, raised this issue in the, for the Senate, uh, I think as a sort of modest proposal, he discussed that in the last segment, when Louis Gohmert brought this up, he was not kidding. A gun enthusiast group in Arizona even suggested that the state be required to arm all of its elected officials. They'd be forced to carry guns. And you know, there is a John Wayne, Jerry Bruckheimer, Yosemite Sam fantasy about what guns can do. That the more guns there are in a place, the safer that place will be. Who, after all, would try to make a victim of any gun holder? Again, I understand the fantasy, but it is worth understanding what's true. In 2004, a national blue ribbon panel of statistics and criminology experts looked into whether or not right to carry laws reduced crime in states that have them. Uh, their conclusion famously was, huh? They don't know. They were completely unable to come to any statistical conclusion about it at all. A brilliant academic second look at all of the data available on the question suggests that if anything, if there's anything that can be discerned from the data, maybe right to carry laws produce more aggravated assaults. Because people who are armed feel emboldened to punch each other more and to threaten to shoot each other while they're punching each other? I don't know. But that's it. That's the only suggestion that's evident in the data. It's not proven that more guns equal less crime. More guns do not equal less crime. The statistical evidence on this in aggregate does not support the fantasy. And if you want to just look at the blunt numbers, the states that have the highest rates of people being killed by guns in this country are by and large the states that have the highest number of guns per capita. Here are the states with the five worst rates of gun deaths. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alaska, Alabama, and Nevada. Here are the rates of gun ownership in those states. Relatively high gun ownership rates, right? Relatively high gun ownership rates, highest gun death rates. Here are the states with the lowest rates of gun deaths in the country. Hawaii, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Here are the gun ownership rates in those states. Compare them. Compare the list on the left and the list on the right. These are the states with the lowest rates of gun death, and those are their comparatively low rates of gun ownership. So again, I understand the fantasy. Everybody wants to believe that superheroes with superpowers, with, with super firepower, they can stop bad things from happening. It is a beautiful fantasy. The facts do not support the assertion, though, that more guns equals less crime, or that a law-abiding citizen with a gun would have made all the difference in Tucson. Regardless of your political views about guns, there are facts. They are worth looking up on issues like this. They matter. So what's on your mind this week, moron? Well, I've been following.
following the Arizona tragedy. Oh, yeah. Now, just because of this Arizona shooting, now the Democrats want to take everybody's guns away. I don't hear anybody calling for gun control, moron. They just want to take the clips. Yeah, they want to take the clips and and they want to say. Well, uh, it was because the guy was using a clip that had held 30 bullets. Huh? And then he had to reload. I mean, why would you need? A, uh, uh, it, um, it held 30 bullets, Jim. Yeah, 30. Jim. 30 bullets. Yes, 30 bullets, moron. In the in the clip, but that's the whole deal. Why do you need 30 bullets in one well, clip? Well, maybe in Arizona. Uh, in Arizona what? Well, they need it. They, For, what, uh, somebody what? breaks into your house. What, 30 people break in? It's usually one guy. Well, well what? Uh, what if what? Yeah, what if you miss them a lot? Then you got extras. <laughs> okay, buddy. Look, Jim, what that Congress lady really needed was just uh, some security. What? If she would have had some security or some people would have had more guns. More? If there was a good person with a gun, uh, then they would have shot that guy quicker. Well, there was people with guns. And? Oh, there was. Yes, there were people. But with what guns. happened? What happened was they almost shot the wrong person. How? Yeah, that's what... How? Well, when they knocked the gun out of Jared Loeffner's hand, the guy who knocked the gun out of his hand, he picked the gun up. And then someone came around the corner and saw him standing there with the gun in his hand and thought he was the shooter and almost shot him. What do you think of that? I don't believe you. What do you mean you don't believe me? Jim, if there was another guy with a gun there, they would have just shot the guy. Moran, I'm telling you, there was a guy with a gun there and he almost shot the wrong guy. Impossible. What? How? What Impossible. You... Everyone knows the more guns there are, the more safer you are. How do you figure that? Just uh, common sense, Jim. Well, common sense, teach me everything I need to know. What's worth fighting for, what I need to just let go. Common sense, teach me what it means to be alive. What to make of all this time, time, time Why it seems that I am bound to love someone Someone who does not know what it means to love Someone who has never known the sweetness of this Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on the nine days since Tucson. That awful night, I said this, we need to put the guns down, just as importantly, we need to put the gun metaphors away and permanently, left, right, middle, politicians and citizens, sane and insane. This age in which this country would accept the, quote, targeting of political opponents and putting bullseyes over their faces and of the dangers blurring between political rallies and gun shows ended. I cited seven examples of violent rhetoric from the right, only one from the left, my own. Because the point of that comment, and this one, was not that the right pulled the trigger in Tucson, but that we as citizens must stop the next Loeffner. And the only way to potentially do this is to accept personal responsibility and to pledge, again, as I said that night, that violence or the threat of violence have no place in our democracy, and I apologize for and repudiate any act or anything in my past that may have even inadvertently encouraged violence. This afternoon, former President Clinton issued a statement honoring what would have been Dr. King's 82nd birthday. 
We'd all do well to heed his message. While no one intends their words or actions to incite the violence we saw in Tucson, and it's wrong for anyone to suggest otherwise, we live in a world where what we say and how we say it can be read, heard, or seen by those who understand exactly what we mean, and by those whose inner demons take them to a very different place. That's not an argument against free speech, but a reminder that, as with all freedoms, its use carries with it responsibility. Therefore, we should follow the example Dr. King set and exercise our freedom of speech in ways that both clarify our honest differences and nurture the best of us rather than bring out the worst. Perfect. Yet the response? To date, only one commentator or politician has expressed the slightest introspection, the slightest self-awareness, the slightest remorse, the slightest ownership of the existence of the fantasy dream cloud of violent language by which we are now nearly blinded. Our political discourse, John McCain wrote in an otherwise steaming serving of Washington Post op-ed partisan flab, should be more civil than it currently is, and we all, myself included, bear some responsibility for it not being so. That's it. One individual, one, assumed any personal responsibility for any of it besides me, John McCain. Not Palin, not Beck, not Limbaugh, not West, not Kenjorski, not Malloy, not O'Reilly, not Angle, not Jesse Kelly, not President Obama. It's me and John McCain. I assume he's like me now, not sure whether to laugh, cry, or be proud of that. So what did everybody else say? They said it was everybody else's fault. And they often said it with more violence than before, in approximate chronological order. Last Monday, while both on, most on both sides were looking askance at the wealth of bogus documents that now traditionally follow these things, a writer at the discredited Breitbart site posted the headline, Whoops, this changes things. Loeffner's hero was Barack Obama. Jim Hoft breathlessly cited a reference on the Free Republic site to a Facebook page supposedly belonging to Jared Lee Loeffner, complete with references to the, quote, racist Tea Party and, quote, fight the right, identifying his heroes as Obama, Chavez, Che Guevara, and Saul Alinsky. Mr. Hoft never noticed that on the alleged Loeffner Facebook page, the word tyranny is misspelled, and so is the name Loeffner. Last Monday, a conservative radio host in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, complained about the coverage of the Giffords shooting by the New York Times. Bob Durgin said, somebody ought to burn that paper down. Just go to New York and blow that sucker right out of the water. Mr. Durgin's supervisor, one R.J. Harris, then improbably claimed, we do not advocate violence, period. That's why this whole outcry over the shootings in Tucson being linked to talk radio is just crazy. Last Monday, another radio announcer named Rush Limbaugh dismissed Pima County Sheriff Clarence Dupnik as a liberal, even though last August Fox News was proud to host Dupnik as he rescinded his opposition to the Arizona Papers, Please law once its racial profiling was toned down. And the year before, Dupnik criticized, quote, catering to illegals. Limbaugh, in fact, blamed Dupnik for the shootings and added, my guess is the sheriff wouldn't mind if the shooter was acquitted. Mr. Limbaugh also said, quote, I would wager that the sheriff knew of this shooter long before this event, which was brave of Mr. Limbaugh, considering the sheriff had said as much two days previously. Last Monday, Glenn Beck posted what he claimed was a call for nonviolence on his website. Alongside an image of him posing with a gun, his pledge was a labyrinthine demand that everyone renounce violence, provided that liberals renounce the 78-year-old woman named, named... Well, what's the difference? She's just the latest target of a man enjoying a sequence of paranoid delusions. He'll be obsessed with somebody else within the week. 
On Tuesday, Republican Congressman Peter King of New York offered a limited but useful prohibition against carrying weapons within a thousand feet of federally elected officials. But the leader of his party in the House, Speaker Boehner, immediately rejected it out of hand without public comment or any hearing. On Tuesday, another radio announcer, Mark Levin, wrapped up the case for his audience. We all know without question that the murderer in Tucson was mentally ill, a liberal pothead and all the rest of it. We know this for a fact. On Tuesday, after Mr. Levin and yet another radio announcer, Michael Savage, were decried for using violent rhetoric, Mr. Savage called this a, quote, blood libel and threatened to sue, seemingly as much for having been linked to Mr. Levin as for having been linked to violent rhetoric. On Tuesday, Congressman West of Florida said he had no regrets for any of the violent rhetoric he had used during his campaign. Mr. West did not address why, after the Tucson shootings, this following video of his first choice to become his chief of staff, Joyce Kaufman, had been pulled from YouTube, since restored. I am convinced that the most important thing the Founding Fathers did to ensure me my First Amendment rights was they gave me a Second Amendment. And if ballots don't work, bullets will. Mr. West did say he was concerned about the political opportunism that has come out of this. He observed that pointing fingers about violent rhetoric was, quote, kind of deplorable and unconscionable. This is not the time to start looking for, you know, grandstanding and things of that nature. On Wednesday, a high school friend of Jared Loftner said, quote, he did not watch TV, he disliked the news, he didn't listen to political radio. Blogger Hoft of the Breitbart site thereupon called for Sheriff Dupnik's resignation, ignoring the rather obvious fact that there is a way one can avoid radio or television and still be extremely political. It's called the Internet, and it is popular with bloggers like Mr. Hoft. Later, a high school girlfriend would say Loftner was strongly opinionated and would be set off by things about the government, things about politics, anything that pretty much had to do with the government. On Wednesday, conservative blogger John Hawkins announced this was all a liberal plot. Quote, Keith Olbermann, Coase, David Brock, all of them are thrilled Gabrielle Giffords was shot. They couldn't be happier about it. How about that? On Wednesday, former Governor Palin of Alaska seemingly destroyed whatever her career was with an opportunistic video in which she identified the real victim here herself. She too invoked a, quote, blood libel, possibly as a dog whistle to the ultra-religious right. And she almost literally said that while her words could not have caused violence, words critical of her words, they could cause violence. On Wednesday, Arizona Congressman Trent Franks determined that the tragedy was that there just was not enough bullets flying in that Tucson parking lot. I wish there had been one more gun there that day in the hands of a responsible person. That's all I have to say. Representative Franks was apparently unaware that there was one more gun there that day. A man named Joe Zamudio was carrying and walked into the carnage. He saw another man with a gun in his hands and was, by his own calculation, one second away from drawing his own gun and shooting that man. That's when he realized that man had taken the gun away from the shooter. Mr. Zamudio had nearly shot one of the heroes. As Mr. Zamudio put it, I was really lucky. On Thursday, after President Obama's remarks at the Tucson Memorial, Breitbart's Mr. Hoft, shaking off his embarrassment over quoting the fake Loftner Facebook page, returned for more. Oops, it looks like Obama fibbed about Giffords opening her eyes for the first time. Then Congresswoman Giffords' physicians confirmed, yes, the Gillibrand, Pelosi, Wasserman, Schultz visit was the first time the Congresswoman had opened her eyes spontaneously or at length. She had previously only done so, and only done so briefly when prodded by her doctors. 
doubling down. Hoft then claimed there was an applause sign flashed during the president's remarks in Tucson. In fact, it was the closed captioning on the arena video screen informing the hearing challenged that there had been applause. On Friday, Bill Kelly of the Washington Times took to heart the message in Mr. Obama's comments. With the monolith of hooting fans, it wouldn't surprise me that Obama supporters were actually bust in for the memorial. Were they union employees or members of ACORN used to pepper the crowd to ensure conformity? Mr. Kelly then used the blood libel, libel line himself and added, I'm not going to have my words, idioms, or expressions censored by the left because they see in this crisis a political opportunity to advance their agenda. On Friday, the former counsel to President Clinton, Lanny Davis, now reduced to being a paid contributor to Fox News, explained what he took away from this president's remarks, namely that Mr. Obama should now publicly ask me to stop attacking Bill O'Reilly. On Tuesday, Tucson Tea Party co-founder Trent Humphreys explained the Gifford shooting to the English newspaper The Guardian. Quote, it's political gamesmanship. The real case is that she had no security whatsoever at this event. James Eric Fuller, one of those wounded at this event, himself a traumatized Vietnam vet, referred to the, quote, Tea Party crime syndicate and said he believed that in the Gifford shooting, it had claimed its, quote, first target. On Saturday, in a decision smacking of the tawdriness of the Maury Povich show, Mr. Fuller was seated in the first row of an ABC News town hall in Tucson with Mr. Humphreys of the Tea Party on the stage. When Humphreys suggested talk of gun control be deferred until after all the victims were buried, Mr. Fuller stood up and started to shout at Humphreys, quote, you're dead. Mr. Fuller was, quite appropriately, arrested and removed for psychological evaluation. He has today apologized, and Mr. Humphreys has said he does not feel threatened and wants Fuller to get mental help. On Saturday, Michael Carroll, State Assemblyman of the 25th District of New Jersey, wrote an op-ed rebutting President Obama. An armed populace is the greatest bulwark of freedom, he wrote. Our framers understood that and envisioned a society akin to Switzerland, in which every citizen is armed and responsible for his own defense and that of the state. Assemblyman Carroll not only painted an America with a gun under every bed, he also, of course, compared Obama to the Nazis. Germany elected Hitler, who seized all private firearms to consolidate his murderous tyranny. And lastly, on Saturday, five days after the blogger Hoft scrubbed the post about the fake Facebook Loffner page with Loffner misspelled as Laffner, Doug Giles of townhall.com cited it as gospel as if it had not been utterly discredited already. Loeffner's, quote, hero list, according to Facebook, includes Barack Obama. Two days later, Giles's claim still sits uncorrected on that very website. Nine days have passed, and the willful blindness hasn't even slowed down yet. Besides the total absence of even the glimmer of personal responsibility that Senator McCain and I have evinced, we learn from all this that the right lives in a perpetual state of victimhood. We learn that the right does not even recognize the irony of its claim of being unfairly blamed for the violence of others when it has spent the last several years doing exactly that to Muslims, particularly American Muslims. We also learn that the right can simultaneously insist that no political party or inclination can be blamed for Tucson, while it itself blames the Democratic Party and the left for Tucson. We learn that the right does not understand that if you, if we, 
foment a political environment in which politics are to be settled by violence, or the threat of violence, or in a rhetorical tide of violent imagery. It no longer matters what those politics specifically are, or if the hearer even understands your politics, or agrees with your politics. He may hear only the permission to be violent. And ultimately we learn, especially from Mrs. Palin's foolishness, this template of what the right would do in an actual open and shut slam dunk case in which a partisan of the right attempted to kill one of the left. The right would blame the victim, blame him or her for not having brought enough security or for not having brought a gun. Hey Jay, this is Todd, calling still from the blue state of California, um, and you are so right about, you know, a primary contestant to Obama being labeled as uh, racist, perhaps. Um, you know, that's one of the things that uh, sealed me uh, going with Obama was uh, Hillary supporters saying, you know, you're sexist if you don't support Hillary, which, uh, you know, I completely resented. And growing up in Portland, Oregon and San Francisco, I had never experienced racism until I moved to Arizona, and I was well into my 30s then. Um, so I hadn't even thought of that. Brilliant to bring it up. I do agree with the guy from Japan and with you that uh, the Israeli issue does not get talked about enough in the media and I, I, I would also add my assurance to your listener in Japan that that we do in fact collect clips r related specifically to Israel um, you know but uh, there's probably just not enough of them to make a whole show yet um, and I also appreciate you running um, this last show uh, on the climate change pointing out the things that, that Obama has done you know, sort of off the grid. Maybe this is the deep thinking that uh, everybody's been waiting for. He's, you know, been making everybody so mad about everything else that he's doing, including people who would support him, that we're not going around telling how much he's doing for green investment or things like that. Uh, let's hope so, because uh, actually climate change is the number one issue, hands down, in my opinion. Keep up the good work. Take care. Hey, Jay, this is Joe from Eugene, Oregon. I just got done to listening to the um, Gabriel Gifford episode, and I just wanted to make two comments. Uh, my first is just related to your show in general, and I just wanted to say that it is probably one of the easiest podcasts that there is to listen to, just the mix of transitions and music and production that you put into it, the subtle references, all make it really easy to understand what's going on and uh, get the point and really easy to listen to while you're doing other things. The other comment is about the actual episode. I wanted to comment about the, the commentators who make violent rhetoric commonplace and how I'm sure that when they went into it, they wanted to affect people. They wanted to make a difference and 
you know, get their voice out there and, and really, you know, change things. And so when something like this happens, they backpedal and they try to take no credit for what they've said. Seems like if their whole goal is to make a difference, then they do that by, you know, and it happens to be negative that they don't take credit for it. The other comment uh, real quick was, if we wanted to do an experiment to actually find out if their rhetoric makes a difference, the only way to do that would be to have them stop doing it for like a five-year period and see what the effects of that are. Um, because there's, no matter what anybody tells them, they're never going to stop. And so there's no way to really get a gauge of the actual effect that their words are on uh, America in general. So I thought that would be an interesting little experiment to just have them, you know, stop making horrible comments for a few years and see if maybe the, um, you know, the climate or the, um, the general environment of the country changes. But that's about all I wanted to comment. I'm glad I got a chance to actually call in. I love your show. So thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I'm going to try to quickly respond to uh, a few listeners. Uh, first, uh, Todd, the, the first caller, I just want to clarify for anyone who is confused. He mentioned kind of... Uh, backing me up on the idea that uh, Best of the Left at least attempts to cover the Israel issue. Uh, and he, he said that he wanted to assure everyone that we really do look for those clips. And I just wanted to explain that Todd is a volunteer with the show and actually helps gather clips and categorize them so he knows my list of categories that I'm looking for and he knows that that's on the list. So I just want to clarify that. Um, he also mentioned John from Japan. I want to give you guys a follow-up on that. John emailed me after hearing my response on the show and, um, we, we've had an exchange, so he, he we're, we're totally clear <laughs> on each other and, and, uh, and all is good there. But one comment that he made was that on the show, I sounded, uh, as though I, I could have been feeling a little proud of my one one show that I had done on Israel that I referenced and uh, and I explained to him that that was meant to be, you know, a little bit of a joke because, uh, you know, to, to be really proud of, uh, haha, see, I did all of one show, you know, months ago, um, you know, it was, it was meant to sound absurd. Uh, frankly, it was a little embarrassing to, to look back and you know, research my own archives and realize there was only one. So really the only thing that went to prove is that, at least I'm willing to talk about the subject, but what it really proves is it doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, and that was the point that I was making before. So uh, I just want to follow up on that for anyone else who may have come away with the same uh, the same idea as John did. And, uh, and then finally, Randy on Facebook, I wanted to uh, give her comment uh, a little bit of air because she wrote in to say that she was disappointed with my uh, response to the idea of uh, putting up a primary candidate against Obama and and said basically that if we continue to vote for people who uh, don't represent our interests, we will continue to be ignored. And uh, so I uh, responded on Facebook but wanted to give this airtime, as I said, saying essentially that um, putting up a primary candidate against uh, you know a sitting president essentially is a tactic 
to an end that we all agree with. We, you know, we all want politics to be more progressive. We want to pull Obama to the left because at least if you agree with the premise of this show, um, then you uh, agree that he uh, needs to be criticized from the left because he's gone too far to the middle and often uh, to center right. So I explained that, you know, that's one tactic that I just don't think would work. And I think that um, putting, you know, grassroots political energy into creating a groundswell of demand for a change in the uh, campaign finance system would be energy better spent than supporting a primary candidate. That's that's just, you know, there's not an infinite amount of uh, political energy in the world. And I think that a primary candidate in this situation would not only fail to accomplish the goals that we hope to accomplish, but would also have uh, some, I think, pretty dire uh, side effects that would split the Democratic Party and and have really, really serious, rancorous uh, infighting. And, you know, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. I hate them only slightly less than I hate the Republicans, but that's indicative of the broken system we have which is why my focus would be more on campaign finance reform. So that that was my response to her on Facebook. I wanted you guys to all hear it as well. It's an interesting topic. It's, you know, this is the sort of thing where we, we all agree on where we want to get to, uh, and then we have to discuss how to get there. So if you disagree, I sincerely uh, hope that you will write in, better yet, call into the voicemail line and convince me otherwise. If... Uh, if new facts come to light and I can be convinced otherwise, I will, I'll come out and say, okay, someone made a convincing argument. It, that does sound like a good idea. So um, those are my thoughts on that. I want to thank Charles M., who signed up for a monthly membership back on September 14th, and Jeff D., who signed up for a yearly membership on December 2nd. Uh, Charles and Jeff and all of the members to the show uh, make it possible for me to do what I do. Uh, it's amazing that you guys support the show uh, like that. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Spreading the word makes a huge difference. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can get details on the show, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, always in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought points are black and white So took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor